Hey everybody, welcome to the Climbing Sycamores podcast, uh, where we look at today's topics to get a better view of Christianity. I'm Annie Beagie, and I'm joined by my friends Ben Sadler and Matt Harbach. Ready to go? Ready to rock. How you doing, Annie? How you doing, Matt? Great. How are you? Pretty groovy. And you, to... you're going to open us up with the, the first topic, huh? You've been doing some reading? Cause you... A little bit. You know, I don't like to read I didn't much. even know you could read. <laughs> I know. I know. It's a, it's a miracle. Um, I, there's a topic brought up um, about small groups. And yeah, I guess this is just kind of a take on, um, I guess, maybe the function of small groups or like, why is this beneficial? Um, so Friar Gabriel Rochelle wrote this article. And it's the the title is Goodbye to Christian Culture and All That. And so the article kind of, um, to summarize, says that the media has so closely aligned Christianity with the right wing, um, and it's kind of deteriorated the reputation of Christianity because because of this alignment. And now, you know, the general public seems to align the two always. And so the friar says that he believes that small groups can combat this and maybe help to restore, um, you know, the to to uh, separate, mm-hmm. you know, Christianity from being exclusively a part mm-hmm. of this, you know, quote crazy right wing. Yeah. You know, not to say that conservative people are crazy, mm-hmm. but you know, huh. there's kind of a perception there. So. First of all, thank you to Sam Dobler. He has made us, given us great topics. Making for, me read. Yeah, that's right, making us read. I think it's really interesting um, that this, I think, is a big theme, especially in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. It's pictured in these kind of apocalyptic terms that the church uh, sees the power of the beast, which is like the beast of the Roman Empire in in. in John's vision, and how um, it's so tempting to align yourself with the beast, this outward powerful, seems to be a powerful movement with either that's government or a movement or whatever it is, to align yourself with that because you don't necessarily believe that the power is in the gospel. So I think this is a an ancient problem and an ancient tendency that when it seems like God and his word isn't working, we want to tie ourselves with something that seems visually, uh, visibly more powerful. So I think that just to kind of first acknowledge the the issue and that that is an ancient problem. Mm-hmm. I think all of us do that too, right? Where we see something that's powerful and we seem so weak and so we want to align ourselves with something that can really get things done. And yeah, I think the, the institutional Christian church kind of in crisis mode has aligned itself with something that seems to be powerful and mm. seems to be happening, and sometimes that's politics or sometimes it's a different kind of movement. So what do you think, Matt? Do you see that happening? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think we've talked about this before, but I think it's always dangerous um, when you try to put either like a big label mm-hmm. on something or yeah, attach it to a movement or try to give it one face in general. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, like saying that there's a, like when we refer to the Christian church, mm-hmm. 
already you've given it a label. Yeah. Because you've just described millions of people as mm-hmm. one thing. Yeah. And we'd like to say that we're all united in faith in Jesus. Yeah. But that's not what that means. Mm-hmm. It means a hundred other things that get tacked on in mm-hmm. people's perceptions. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, and that's, that's just what happens. Yeah. Um, and so you can, you can live like that for a while. The problem is as soon as anyone starts getting any power, the loudest voices are going to, are going to most dominate the perception that other people have. Mm-hmm. And so for the longest time, it was the Catholic church and they said, and, and they were actually, they, they did actually try to be um, a, a, mo- a monolithic Christian church. And so anything the Pope says, that was what all Christians did, you know, and, and, and now that we split off and there's like 300 different denominations of Christianity, but still when people think of I Christian, think it's more like a hundred thousand denominations oh wow Mm. (laughs) yeah well it's a ton whatever (laughs) yeah all very nitpicky yeah (laughs) yeah but um uh yeah uh uh, what was i just saying probably super smart rats i think it does uh see so the the one face you know that we all align under this one idea that can be really hard and i think it's also um it's actually it undermines uh, one of the highest values I think in our culture today, which is integrity or transparency, um, humility. Yeah, and and so if if somebody sees you not necessarily transparently with integrity, actually clinging to Jesus, but actually clinging to something outside of Jesus as your real power, your real power is the political movement, your real mm-hmm. power is the money or power. Or even, you know, some Christians who want to, like, tie to some Hollywood character, like, if mm-hmm. we could just get Hollywood on our side or somebody in Hollywood on our side, um, I think that undermines our message in lots of ways that, you know, people can see, oh, you really don't actually just trust in Jesus. You trust in your connection to something more powerful in society. Mm-hmm. So it's actually undermining, too. We, you know, we went to that—we've talked about this before—we went to that Dare to Lead conference, and John Hine brought up in his presentation, you know— how the Christian church has tried to use different movements and latch onto them. And so during the Cold War, it was latching onto atheistic communist regimes like the Soviet Union. And if we could just get back to the nationalism, the Christian nationalism mm-hmm. almost, and mm-hmm. just fight against those communists, and that kind of made us unified around that one idea and and church attendance did grow. I mean, even after 9-11, there was this idea that we have to stop evil um, Islamic extremists and we kind of all unified for a short period around that movement. But yeah, they don't seem to last when you try to latch on or ride the visible power of the world. So So do you think that small groups is a good kind of fundamental back to basics way because i mean the early christian church mm-hmm. did that right is, is yeah. this is this going to be helpful mm-hmm. in rebuilding can it can it or i think small at the end of the day i think most christian churches will be you know the average size of a christian church is actually like 40 right now in the united states like that's the average church size you know we know about more churches that are bigger uh, because they get more visibility, the churches of a thousand and 
the mega churches and things like that. But if you were in average, so that means there's lots of churches that are just small groups by and of themselves. I think what small groups and small churches you take away that idea that oh you're just a part of this movement because you're riding the 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 movement of the times um a smaller group kind of has that integrity like no we just are part of this because we believe it's true and we find not only that it's true but um the support of other christians in that really um honest transparent way uh, is a very powerful message, not only to the people who are in the group, but also to the world that, oh, you just actually believe this, and you're not trying to sway the world, you're not trying to latch onto some movement. So I do think it's very powerful. Um, and then churches about our size that are kind of in the middle, uh, six, seven hundred people, um, I think having small groups is uh, is a way to kind of foster those deeper relationships, that integrity, that honesty. So yeah, I think it's a—there's it, no silver bullet, but I think it, it it's really— it, it fights that idea that you're latching on to something other than Jesus. Do you think that um, every person, like let's just say at Victory, should be involved in a small group? That would be great. That'd be ideal. I, I think the challenge we have is we live in the—we're kind of a, a church in the suburbs, and we have lots of people are spread out everywhere, and our lives are so busy that I think a lot of people's small group already is their kids' sports teams or their other activities that they're in. And so to have another small group to go to is is a challenge. I think what we have to continue to show is that these groups that gather, the smaller groups, have a purpose of getting into God's Word, praying for each other, um, being honest with each other about your struggles. Um, so yeah, I, I think that would be ideal. I think we need to find a way to help people see the value of it because there's so much, so many things competing for their time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What do you guys think? I don't. I don't know. I guess for me, I mean, you had a small yeah. group and we were doing that. Was yeah. that pre-COVID or was it? Yes, kinda, pre-COVID. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't remember anything like yeah. timeline, but um, BC. You know, yeah, BC <laughs> before COVID. Um, and I, I mean, I enjoyed that. Yeah. I, I guess for me, I feel like I have a lot of friends right. and I, I personally don't need like that sense of community. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's always good to be around other Christians. Right. And so in that regard, yes, but also, you know, being involved at church and working at church and going, at ch- going to church, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I mean, I guess I could always do more, yeah. but in the, in the sense that if you if you're, if you're really just trying to foster community and keep mm-hmm. people from being lonely and yeah. get those deeper relationships, I I feel like I have that. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? So I don't know. I think that's the challenge, right? Uh, especially, you know, you grew up in Milwaukee, and you, so you have a lot of long-standing relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when we lived in Orlando, what was so f- different about that culture there was I met one person who was born in Florida. Oh, when okay. we were there for over three years, everyone was transplanted there uh, from different cultures and countries, and so they needed that family. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, if you have no Christian community, uh, I think those small groups are super, super important. It's hard, I think, in the Milwaukee area to show the value of it because, like you said, you know, people have family. At least in our church body, in our area, people have family and deeper relationships. A lot of them were born in this area. They've been here for generations. You know, we have a whole school system that kind of fosters gr- groups and, and family connections. But how often are you praying with 
a group of people? How often are you being honest about your doubts and your struggles? And I know you have a pretty dynamic group of friends that you guys do talk about some really challenging, deep things. Um, but how often are we praying together? And so I think that's how do you do that? Now, we have digital groups that can do that. You know, we're praying for you, text each other. That is a little bit removed. It's not exactly the same thing. So I think that's the one thing that's missing. So how do you bring that into your life where you are reading a verse or two, going to God in prayer, praying for each other, responding to to doubts and challenges? Hmm. What do you think, Matt? Um. I don't think that it's necessary to be in a small group for the sake of being in a small group. Um, but I think to both of your points that you, you know, you should, you should seek out people in your life that will encourage you who want you to succeed and who are, um, wise in God's word. If you don't have that, a, a small group is a perfect place to start. You know, if there's a group at your church that is roughly your demographic, mm-hmm. people in the same stage of life as you, join that small group. But if you have people already, don't don't just join a group for the sake of saying like, oh yeah, I'm in a small group, so you can feel like you're contributing or so you can feel like you're doing more. Because um, if you're busy, you'll just resent the extra commitment probably, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it'll be a negative. Yeah. So if you don't have that so this friar gabriel mm-hmm. rochelle you know talks about importance of small groups you don't have that how do you get some i think the can, can the worship service give you everything that you need as a christian can it give you a sense of really deep relationships christian community um prayer um, I don't know if the worship service, especially in a larger church like ours, can give you all of those things in the worship service. Uh, there, it's great to worship God together as a larger group, but there is something when you have a group of four or five people that you can say, let's pray together, I need your prayer, I need I need this time together, that you just can't do in the worship service. So, so how do you, even if you're not, I, I agree, You know, if, if it's just a program in a church uh, to be a part of a small group, um, you might end up resenting it, um, but how do you find the value of of actually being devoted to another group of people besides yourself and praying for them and and serving them? All right, here's a question for both of you. Yeah, um, Ben, you like run the small groups, kind of, or you kind of oversee them. Yeah, and Annie, you're not in a small group per se, but your music team is a something of a small group because you do spend a lot of time together and you do pray together. Yes. Um, what are some positive negatives that you guys have found from those groups? Go. I think the negative is, you know, I don't know what day to do it. I don't. I don't so we were, we have a group on Sunday afternoons that was like the only little bit of time but then you know it's just there's always something to do right um our kids are in, we're doing this our kids are in that age where there there are sports for for them there's activities our kids are at camp philip right now um at different summer camps so when do you do it when we're kind of in the thick of of kids activities uh in that in this time of life um i'm finding that there, there's a 20-something group right now that are meeting, and that seems to be really 
going well. There's also a 40s, 50s something right now, a 50s, 60s group right now that that's really going gangbusters. That's really, uh, really great. But it does seem like people who are in their 30s and early 40s, when their kids are at that kind of really busy time, it's hard to be devoted um, to to a, another group of people. I do think the blessing of I know some other people intimately. I know their spiritual struggles. I know what to pray for them uh, about. And I can also be honest about the things I'm struggling with, and they can pray for me. And we can kind of not do this alone. Uh, you're known and you're, uh, you're, you're prayed for. And, um, and you're devoting somebody outside of yourself to your, you're devoting to that smaller group of people. Um, so I think that's a huge advantage. And again, the disadvantage is just when is a good time to do it? Well, and I think, you know, working here, we kind of have, yeah. you know, we're all, I mean, doing this podcast and just working here, mm-hmm. you know, we've all had many talks. Right. You know, and I think Pastor Bill does a really good job of leading our staff yes. where there's a check in where mm-hmm. you know, what's going on in your life? What can we pray about? So we, we, we have that as a staff also. So we could point to many different ways uh, that, that we have going on. For me, also, there's other pastors that I gather with and speak to um, more than once a month. Where that those are other small groups that I, I think another thing is COVID really did change things. Like to um, people are not that comfortable or used to having people into their homes right now, and um, and so we we find more groups that are meeting here at church than it used to be more common for people to meet in homes, and that's just not where people are at even now. Well, and I think too, you know, you mentioned like the music team and we're kind of, you know, I, and I, I should probably do a better job of this, but you know, we're kind of bound by this function, mm-hmm. you know, of like making music and, and leading worship. And so it kind of just happens naturally, yeah. just like working here is yep. kind of just, we're bound kind of by function, yep. you know? And so I feel that way with the music team as well. Um, so I, yeah, I do kind of consider that a small group. And then, you know, Matt and I, we meet with some worship leaders mm-hmm. around the city and, you know, we do that monthly mm-hmm. and, you know, we get together and jam and pray and, yep. and that's, you know, another small group type situation yep. where we have the support of one another. So. Yeah. Now are there people who don't have any of that? Right. Uh, and, and then to intentionally do that, uh, to, f- to make sure you, whether you do it through church or you seek out other people that you can pray with, I do know that there are times when, for whatever reason, I've missed some of those gatherings or I'm not as well connected, and I can feel it inside of me like uh, that that I do feel isolated. I'm kind of wrestling with my own thoughts by myself, and uh, I know that it's pretty easy to go to a dark place of not not seeing the world clearly. The really fascinating thing, I think, in the, in the, in the scriptures is that um, the scriptures kind of trace the presence of God. Uh, so in the Old Testament, the presence of God is in the tabernacle. He comes down in glory and leads God's people out of Egypt. And then it's in the temple when Solomon builds a temple. And then God's presence leaves and and follows them into exile. And the New Testament, the the God's presence is Jesus. He says, you know, I am the I am the temple. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild in three days. And then at Pentecost, the glory of the Lord shows up on people. Uh, the presence of the Lord 
as pictured in the flames of fire, that's kind of how the presence of the Lord is always pictured throughout the scriptures, separates, and it doesn't go on the temple anymore, but on the people. And so if you want to be in the presence of God, to gather with his people in his word is where it's at. And so I know that when I don't have that, what we're talking about, I can sense a lack of God's presence in my life. Mm. And so I, I do think really, really important. We can't dismiss it. And that, I think that's the challenge of kind of our digital ministries is that if you're only consuming biblical content isolated by yourself, you can kind of reason your way out of the truth. You can you can find a way to explain it away or not, not really be able to apply it to yourself. But when you're gather with other Christians, they can help you say, no, this good news, this is for you too, and it's for all of us. And uh, and so I, I think that's still very, very important. That's good. All right. Parting question. Yeah. How, how, uh, how big should a church get? Or should we, should we put a cap on how big our church gets? I do think it's good to start exploring other avenues once you get to about where we're at in worship service. You know, we are starting, we were going to do other sites, and now we've decided to go more digital focused. Um, I do think once once you get to a point where a pastor can't know everybody by their first name, it, it can, and, and the people don't feel like they have access to the pastor, and the pastor kind of is removed from the congregation, is just kind of this talking head up there and not actually able to pastor the people. So I do think either you, you get more pastors, which I think can work, or you need to start another ministry, and that's kind of what we've decided to start a digital ministry when we get to about this size. That, that's a personal opinion, um, but I, I don't think one person can really minister to more than 150, 200 people. I don't think you. What is the statistic? You can't really know people deep more than fifty people deeply, something like that. And that's important to you as a pastor. It is for you me, know, to, and you know, and other pastors might say something. You know, let's get as big as we can because we want as many people to hear about Jesus as possible. So, I just think, how can you care for as many? You know, how can you care for a thousand people? But every church wants more people, including this one. That's why we keep track of numbers, and when it's a good week, we say good job. Yeah. <laughs> And to yeah. be clear, it's not about money either. Like, you know, cause yeah. just throwing that out there. Yeah. But I, I think there is a, there is a capacity. I was talking with somebody who, who's, who leads at a, at a college and the co- they, they kind of said like a tipping point, you get to these tipping points where you have to structurally change. You can't really be a, a mom and pop hardware store if you're the size of Home Depot, you mm-hmm. have to structurally change. And mm-hmm. so the same thing happens, I think, inside of a Christian church that like you can't just say we want a thousand people when you are staffed for 500 or 200 and just say we're going to work harder to get to know everybody. So either either you have to break off and start something new or you have to fundamentally change the structure of how you help people and serve people. And small groups is one of those ways that 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 has been the answer to churches that got really large is we have small groups so that everybody is cared for in their small group and that kind of becomes your church. Uh, the pastor is not necessarily going to be able to minister to you but your small group can. Um, so I, 
yeah, I, I think that's that's how you always have to ask the question. Uh, you know, are are people being cared for? Are uh, are we too large to care for our own people? If so, we have to structurally change. Does that help? Sure. Okay. Sam, I hope we answered your yeah topic. I think if you're not around family, not around community, and you don't have that community, I think the church is the greatest way to build it if you don't have it. So, All right, next question. As we continue the sermon series lately, uh, I'm glad you asked, and people um, gave us questions that they struggle with. And really, there was no surprises with these questions because they're kind of the classic questions about why people struggle with Christianity. And so you can find you know, any kind of apologetic book, the book that tries to prove the Bible, and there you'll find all these questions in there. But our sermon series will be better. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> sure, that sounds good. I hope so. Um, and the, the question that Pastor Bill responded to last Sunday was, is Christianity the only way to heaven? Uh, aren't there, couldn't there be many ways to heaven, or many ways to be saved, or many ways to the best life now, or however you want to say it? Uh, so I don't know. How, what do you guys think? Have you heard that before? Have you struggled with that before? Do you know people who struggle with it? Why do you think people ask that question? Well, I think so. The way the question is worded is, "Will only Christians go to heaven?" Okay. And I like the way that's worded because a lot of times, I mean, it goes back to those labels like, "What is a Christian?" Mm-hmm. and because my family is Christian and I was baptized. Mm-hmm. And so our, our family's Christian. So I would call myself a Christian mm-hmm. and it becomes something that either you can label yourself as, okay. or that you can prove by how you live. Sure. If you go to church a couple of times with what, what church are, are you a member of? Yeah. That makes practicing. you a Christian. You're practicing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so now you've labeled yourself a Christian. So now you get to go to heaven mm-hmm. and, makes it all about you okay and so that's that i think that's the reason people ask it no Mm -hmm. one asks are only people saved by jesus going to heaven okay because they know the answer is yes okay (laughs) (laughs) they they know the answer is or or it goes into like you know, like if you, or what we talked about in, in the sermon was uh, if you sincerely believe some other religion, could you go to heaven too? Yeah. But people, people don't always equate being a Christian with people saved by grace. Okay. Those are not the same thing. I think people, there, there is sort of a works element. Okay. Because people who aren't Christian don't understand grace, I don't think. Mm. It's, it's either, it's either very foreign. Yeah. Or it's very perverse, mm-hmm. but you don't fully understand it unless you actually believe it and learn about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so then it's just like, oh well, you're Christian mm-hmm. and you're Muslim yeah. and you're Hindu, and they're all the same thing mm-hmm. because there's no understanding of grace, and so mm-hmm. Christianity is like a works thing, or it's just a self-identification. It's like, wait, so why does your faith get to go there and their yeah. faith doesn't? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there's no understanding of what it actually means. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Annie? I don't know. I feel like, yeah, uh, you know, a lot of, not a lot, but, you know, a handful of people I've talked to, well, you know, they're all basically the same, right? you know, kind of is the argument and yeah. I don't know. I've heard this quote and I don't know where it originated, um, but there is this assumption that religions are superficially different 
but fundamentally the same. Mm. So like, oh, we have different ways of praying or different ways of singing, but fundamentally we all are worshiping the same God and in the, the you know and have the same basic beliefs at the at the fundamental level. And then this speaker said, actually, it's the reverse. They're superficially similar, but fundamentally different. So superficially, religions are similar in the sense that they're all all, all have a book, a Quran, a Bible, or something. Do good to other people. Have yeah. The, you know, that. They all pray. They all have music. They all have kind of a worship service. So they're superficially similar, but fundamentally, they're different. When you when you actually dig down deep, um, an honest Muslim who's maybe a leader in, in the Muslim faith will will say, "Yeah, we are very different. That's different than Christianity. You believe um, in the in the Trinity, in God becoming a human being, in Jesus Christ, in 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 that He died for our sins, that that He has removed. You know, you that's what you believe. Islam is very different." Um, we believe in these these pillars that you have to follow. Um, we believe that there is no such thing as a trinity that that God is one. And so that's so so I, I think once you actually get into it, it's they can't be this they can't actually both be true because they're opposites. Um, they're things can't be black and white. things can't be up and down. Um, one does not is not the same as two, so that's where it kind of becomes challenging. Is when you actually look at the fundamental differences, they can't both be the same thing at the same time. Something can't be poison and a cure at the same time. It's either one or the other. Well, and yeah. I think people just don't study any of it deeply enough to right. recognize that. Right. So they are just seeing kind of the superficial. Everybody's praying, do one to others as you'd have them do to you kind of thing. And so I think they're just kind of seeing that and there's not enough deep study to actually recognize that. And and we're all being judged on our actions. So it's like, oh, you go to church Friday, you go to church Saturday. Oh, you won't drink alcohol. You won't have sex before marriage. You know, that's that's all the stuff on the outside. Mm -hmm. You're religious. You think there's a God and he wants you to act in a certain way. Yeah. And that's not what Christianity is. Mm -hmm. But. It's, you know, we don't always wear grace on our sleeves, so to speak. Yeah. And so people just kind of see, like, you know, if you told them that you were Presbyterian or if you were Methodist, they would, uh, okay, you know. Yeah, right. Sure, right. whatever. Right. You know. Yeah. I think also behind this question is, and Pastor Bill brought this up in the sermon, um, what about those who've never heard? God seems unjust if it's about trusting in this Jesus and did, has this message reached all all people? And um, so there, there's there's a reason for this. You know, there is a, a a thought of like again going back to the justice of God. Why would God judge people based on something that they've never had an opportunity to respond to? Uh, that doesn't seem very kind or loving or good. And He's supposed to be good and loving and and righteous. There's a verse in. Acts and also in Romans, where Paul says something, he's speaking to the Athenians, and he says, um, God has overlooked such ignorance in the past, but now he's called all people to repentance. It's one verse, so it's kind of hard to make a whole theology on that, that God has overlooked such ignorance. Um, 
Jesus was also asked a similar question. I think it's in Luke 11, where they, people asked Jesus, "Are many people going to be saved, or only a few people going to be saved?" Another, you know, another another way of saying, you know, what about all those people who've never heard? And Jesus kind of responds by saying, "You do what you can to enter the narrow way." In other words, that's for me to decide. That's for me to to deal with. You have enough on your hands to respond to. What about you who have heard? What about you who do know the truth? So um, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. Like all of these questions and trying to make God seem unjust is avoiding the fact that you do know, you have heard, mm, how are you going to respond yes. to it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and then, then the other thing is, doesn't that make you arrogant if you think you have the only right way and everybody else, um, you know, is, is not like you. So doesn't it make you look down on other people? Well, Christianity is the only, like you were talking about grace. It's the only religion that says there's nothing about me that makes me better than any other religion or any other culture or any other group. Um, it's sheer grace. Uh, it's a God who came to rescue me. Um, I'm a recipient of this good news. So at one time, it makes me confident uh, and bold and thankful, but it doesn't make me arrogant as if I somehow are better better than than, than somebody who's uh, Muslim or Hindu or whatever. So I think Christianity is the only religion, not only is it true, but it's the only one that creates, I think, true humility. It doesn't, if you really follow what Christianity says, you shouldn't be the kind of person who looks down on other religions or wants to destroy other religions or, or you know, arrogantly disprove other religions. It's one of compassion, saying, "I can't believe God would rescue me." Um, so I think I think at many levels it responds to those concerns that people have about the only right way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does that spark any? Yeah. Any thoughts from any of you guys? Yeah, I had I have one. Um, sort of tangential mm-hmm. but um i think people have i think in general people have like a, a respect for people for for others who mm-hmm. um practice religion yep um i think it's like oh don't judge them for their religion yeah or like you know oh i think it's cool that you do that mm-hmm. uh, it's not for me but you know um and we talk about the natural knowledge of of mm-hmm. God. I think everyone has that. And I think people, I think a lot of people are too scared to pick a religion. Mm-hmm. They have no reason to pick a religion, but they they see it as bravery if you actually choose one. Okay. And practice. Because they feel that inside themselves. They feel that spirituality and they don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, I don't know if you're right, but at least you picked. Sure. You know? Um, and I mean, again, I think we, we have that knowledge of God that's drawing us um, basically a, away from our guilt or kind of toward our guilt, but away from our, our sins in a mm-hmm. way. Um, and it's not necessarily leading us to grace on its own. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I think everyone has that, and I, I think that that you know, sort of like we say deep down, yeah. they they respect people who who pick a religion, whether it's true or not. But I mean, I think that's partially why they they kind of see them all as the same. Yeah. 
they just see them all sort of as like a choice you've made to pursue this this deep desire of your heart to know god but i can't really prove that any of them is right and i have no reason to pick a religion i feel like that's kind of stupid and then you get so then you get a lot of people that fall in the camp that just say they're vaguely spiritual yeah. oh, and that yeah. there yeah. there is a higher power, but they don't know what to do with that. Well, yeah, and they don't pursue it necessarily, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right, though, that there... I, I don't... The implications of if this is true, Jesus talks about a cross that we bear, that that every Christian will carry a cross, that if this is true, it also means great loss for every one of us. Uh, that that we we can't be the same as before. That this means I'm not the center of my universe. I don't call the shots, and as long as um, I don't receive that message, uh, I still get to make the, these choices on my own. I get to decide what's right and wrong. It's back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I want to be God. I want to decide what's right and wrong. So it's very scary to actually really commit to following Jesus because it costs so much. And um, I think as our culture becomes maybe more uh, hostile towards Christianity, I think that'll become even more apparent that that following Jesus is a cost. And so I can see why people would not want to do it, and I can see why, even in my own heart, why it's hard to actually fully commit to what I actually believe, because it does mean a loss. Uh, and so it's much more comfortable to say, well, basically everybody's going to get to the top of the mountain. We're all taking our own path, like Pastor Bill mentioned. Um, but Jesus does say he's the way. And yeah, it's going to mean a great cost, but it's worth the cost. So count the cost, he says. Uh, see if it's worth it. And he he believes it actually is. Um, so I don't think it's, I, th- I don't think it's arrogant. If somebody had... Um, the cure for a disease and said this is how you this is how this is how you get cured and they shared that that's not arrogant it's just the truth um i think what christianity provides not only a basis of truth but actually um a person that divides history uh, that we count off our calendars according to the birth of this one person so it's clear for, for all people they can look to this person, Jesus Christ, who's made this huge impact through his death and resurrection that we can all um, receive. I think what's keeping people from receiving it is what you brought up, Matt, actually making that decision, actually buying into it, and then, and then I think counting the cost. That's what it really is. And so we, yeah, we honor or we... Um, appreciate people who are able to actually commit to something because that commitment always comes with the cost. Yeah. So I think that's really the reason behind it. Pastor Ben is not endorsing decision theologies this year. Of course not. No. (laughs) I mean, Jesus will say, I'm the one who drew you. Um, From our perspective, though, it's that it's our commitment. But yeah, actually, you look back at it and and every Christian will say, "I I didn't want this. God, God drew me in. God hold me this way. God brought me here. I'm a child of God because of the work of grace. I'm just saying from a human perspective. Yeah. When Jesus would call people to commit to him, they gave up all different reasons why they wouldn't. Yeah. All right. I think that's enough on that. Hopefully uh, that helped answer. Back to another question that we received on the Sabbath. 
Uh, Matt, you wanted to talk about that? Yeah. So um, we've talked about how church is, church is kind of tough to schedule because mm-hmm. life is busy. So what is the role of the Sabbath? Because that's the one commandment that we don't have to keep, question mark, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, worship, the worship service day and the Sabbath are two different ideas, actually. It's not um, the Old Testament idea of a Sabbath. Yeah, they would assemble, but it was mostly uh, a day of not working and a day to stop working, and that was on Saturday, and it was pointed back to creation. Um, And then the New Testament, we are told, especially in Paul's letter to the Colossians, don't let anyone judge you based on any of these rituals, especially the Sabbath. Uh, And then he says, those are all a shadow of the things to come. The reality is found in Christ. So Jesus, he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. Uh, And so those are pictures that we actually uh, find fulfilled in Jesus. Now the So we don't have a mandate from God that we have to follow the Sabbath according to the Old Testament laws. I do wonder um, if there's some value here in practicing the Sabbath, not as a legalistic rule, but as a practice for just good emotional and spiritual health. I don't know. What do you guys think? No, I, I agree with that. Okay. Yeah. Now you kind of you said you you know you mentioned this in I don't know if that was the last podcast or before that you know you grew up in a tradition you called it a cult that you know tried to follow the Sabbath to an nth degree, which seemed more like a burden than actually a blessing. Yeah, so yeah. you want to talk more about well, that? Or? Yeah, basically it was just like, and I may have mentioned this before, from sundown on Friday to yeah. sundown on Saturday, and we went to church on Saturday, and church was very long and. And nobody was allowed to watch TV or yeah. do basically anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're like, yeah, so what, like, could you not prepare food? Did you have to, like, put things like that or? I mean, I, I think we did. I Or we'd go or go out to eat. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was, I mean, I was still kind of young and mm-hmm. didn't have to worry about that type of responsibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was always fed, so I. That's good. <laughs> but um, it, it was very ritualistic and. Yeah. I never really understood why, mm-hmm. but I remember, you know, like, I think it would impact, you know, our, my extended family and like other people who didn't practice this, mm-hmm. um, because you'd kind of be ostracized just because you were practicing this and you didn't get to mm-hmm. do some of the things on Saturdays that other people would do. And yep. so, so I, I think, you know, when we make it a burden or we don't really know why we're doing it, I, I think that's when it it's not helpful at all. But we all know that our body has to oscillate between rest and work and pushing it to the extreme seven days a week without any rest. Um, someone, I read, I've read a couple different places, uh, some of these statistics that Seventh-day Adventists who do follow this kind of, uh, they still do practice the Sabbath. On average, they live, I don't know if it, how many more years longer, and if you add up that time, it adds up to as many Saturdays as, you know, so like, I think just the rhythm of creation, the way God created us, we need a day off. Um, and if you don't, it's going to catch up to you. So 
So. Well, right. And I feel like had that been presented in mm-hmm. my culty church growing up, had that been presented in that way, mm-hmm. I guess for me and my perception of it, again, I was young, it was more about control. Like yeah. if you don't do this, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and, and then, you know, because if you're off on, if you're not supposed to work or do anything on Saturdays, except go to church, well, guess what? Now who's, you know, the church is growing and you're mm-hmm. giving your money. And like, it was always a control to me, mm-hmm. a control thing. Mm-hmm. We need to have, you know, butts in the seats and people mm-hmm. need to be tithing and do, you know, it was always just control. So it was yep. never to me presented as a way like, no, we need this rest or you yeah. should take some time to rest. Right. Maybe not Saturday. It was to me, it was always just about control and making sure that yeah, because you weren't doing anything else you had, you were at church. Right. You know? Yeah. And that was characteristic of that that church. So Jesus fought against that mentality too when the Pharisees, that religious sect that started off a, a good idea uh, that turned into very legalistic, um, you know, they were making sure nobody was picking grain that fell on the ground uh, when they were hungry. or And so Jesus kind of this one liner that kind of put it all to rest. He says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other way, in other words, like this is a gift of God. The Sabbath is a gift that God gave to human beings for rest. He didn't create human beings for the purpose of following these laws. Like our purpose as a human being is not to figure out what what all the Sabbath restrictions are, and then somehow if we get a hundred percent on following all of the do not work rules, you know, we somehow fulfilled our purpose. No, God has given us a day off as a gift to remember that he's always at work so we don't always have to be. That ultimately our our the, the resources that we have, the work that we have, our abilities we have, our opportunity to make money and and have food on the table is ultimately a gift of God. And to not work reminds our own heart that it's not all relying on me. So Sabbath is a gift from God to human beings, not something that we're supposed to give back to God like he needs us to follow it. What do you got? Yep. Here's another question. So does a Sabbath fit into a 40-hour work week? And maybe to expand on that, is a 40-hour work week really a 40-hour work week anymore? Or is it more like a 50-60 hour work week? And then you think about the amount of time like when you're home, is your is your brain actually not thinking about work anymore, or is it like, oh shoot, I got to send that email I forgot to send? Take out your phone, you know. I think we talked about this before. I think the blessing and curse of the ever-present technology uh, has, yeah, stopped. There was a statistic somewhere I read that during COVID, um, you know, people had all this time off, but actually they worked more especially if you had like a knowledge-based work or a digital-based work that you actually, you know, there was nowhere to separate. There's no way to turn off, you nowhere to go. It was ever present. So yeah, I think that, I think we, so that could be one of the really powerful blessings of instituting some kind of Sabbath practice is I'm going to fight against this. I'm going to turn my phone off for one day, or I'm going to not check my email for one day, whatever it is to kind of put some artificial blocks in your life where your technology isn't putting it, 
you, you, your work's following you everywhere you go because you can always access it. And I know that when I do that, when I turn off my email or turn off my phone for one day a week, man, I can kind of think again. It opens up my brain again. So, yeah, I think there is, that's a great question. What do you think? What do you think, Annie? I don't know. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Here's another question. Um, what are different, what are different variations that you've heard of Sabbath practice? Um, you know, I, there's the one hand where not just the church you grew up in, Annie, but lots of churches still practice almost kind of a legalistic, whether it's Saturday or the blue light laws of Sunday, you know, no, no drinking, no, there was a time where most businesses were closed on Sunday and things like that. And some places, uh, I think in the Bible belt that, that still happens, not, not all of them, but, um, so there's one extreme maybe of, of legalism that this has to happen this way. Then I, I've heard of people who, and we've tried to do some of this, and I think our kids really have appreciated that, making a day um, like a Saturday. And, and that's kind of where this all came from when our country was founded. The reason we have a Saturday and Sunday off is it was a way of saying, all right, there's Jewish people in our culture who are going to take off the Sabbath. There's Christians who are going to take off Sunday for, for celebrating the resurrection. And so we're going to give you a two-day weekend. And so that's kind of, I think that's where that came from. Uh, so we kind of get the best of both worlds. Now we're in a like culture now where there is no weekend, a day off. We're 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 running to things. I think we should really give the Muslims some respect. Take Friday off. There you too. go. That's, <laughs> good. That's right. Three day weekend. Um, I I do think um, John Mark Homer. I'm just holding his his book. John Mark Homer wrote a book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and he talks about having a Saturday where you do disconnect from technology, you do intentionally uh, practice um, a time for rest and worship, whatever that looks like. Resting from the, ceasing from your normal work and worshiping God, whether that means getting out into nature, whether that means watching a great movie, playing some games, having some kind of break from the normal routine to stop, to, to rest, and to worship, I think is a great idea as a practice, not as a law or something to bring more guilt into your life, but as a gift from God. So I think that could be helpful. And when we've done that as a family, our kids have enjoyed it. I've reconnected. You actually become more productive, I think, in the days that you actually work if you have that oscillation between work and rest. So I I hope that answers what we've been talking about. Yeah, I think so. I'm good. All right. Good. I'm good. Thanks, guys. That's about an hour. There you go. See ya. If you'd like to get a hold of us here at the Climbing Sycamores podcast, feel free to email bsadler at victoryofthelamb.com. B-S-A-D-L-E-R at victoryofthelamb.com. If you like today's intro music, it's been brought to you by Andrew Lynch's song, My Name, Hello. Hello.